Welcome to the Paths Puddles Products Podcast. Today, we are excited to present a guest episode featuring Scott Zimmer. Scott is a prominent advocate of design in business with a wealth of experience in various C-suite roles. He notably served as Chief Design Officer at Capital One and as Chief Experience Officer at Verizon. He played pivotal roles in driving customer-centric growth and transformative initiatives while building design teams that have since grown and operate successfully today. He was in the eye of the storm when consultancy firms, recognizing the value of design in business, started acquiring design companies during the 2010s. He orchestrated the acquisition of the San Francisco-based design agency Adaptive Path for Capital One. I was genuinely excited to chat with Scott. His story is important for all of us working in design. Scott, coming from a business background, saw the potential of design, and he wasn't just talking the talk, he's actually walked the walk. He successfully turned design into a real game changer for businesses, showing other business roles just how valuable it can be. Our conversation, recorded back in September last year, 2023, when he was visiting family in Hungary. We dug into what it takes for business to respect design and how design can shake things up for the better. Come walk with us. Welcome back to the Past Bottles Products. We are lucky to have a new special guest walking with us, actually walking with me today. Aniko is not here in the forest. And welcome, Scott. Yeah, thrilled to be here. Uh, we are out in the Buddha Hills, as per usual. And um, this conversation or this uh, walk today came about in a rather special way, I would say. Scott and I didn't know each other maybe two months ago or so. Yeah, I think July. Yes, it was July. I wrote an article on Medium about some observations I've made in the design industry and in particular around the uh, utilization of service design in strategy. And um, I got a very interesting message on LinkedIn from Scott. Yeah, I just said I loved it. And you hit upon a lot of things that I think are truths. So Scott is from the States. True. And as I said, we are lucky enough that he has a Hungarian in his family. So time to time he gets to come to Budapest or to Hungary. And that's what gave us the chance to, to walk today. Exactly. Happy to be back. Yeah. So tell me what what struck a chord with you in that article? Well, I think your catch phrase or your lead-in was, this is why I don't call myself a service designer anymore. That's correct, yeah. So maybe that was a little bit of intrigue to read into it. And um, I think in the article you you talked about some of your past and how you got into service design after a start as an industrial designer. And you talked about your passion for service design and how much you enjoyed it. And you also pointed out that it's become more and more common recently for people to take quick courses and 
begin to call themselves service designers. And, and that leads to several challenges for designers in the industry and for the rise of service design. And I've seen both sides of that. I've seen the challenges and I've also seen at companies, if, if you're lucky enough to be on the inside of a company and all of a sudden get the green light to build out a service design department and you go ready to hire service designers, you find that service designers are very difficult to find. And in the States, there's only three, four schools that have a reputation for graduating, you know, strong designers with service design methods and beliefs and passion like yours. And of course, in the States, it's not very easy to hire from Europe uh, and bring somebody over. So, yeah. so that leads to the supply-demand problem, and that leads to people saying, yeah, I just learned service design. And one of the things I've seen that matches your point on the threat is if it's a naive hiring where the person doesn't have a design background, they may say, great, you said the right words, you're hired. And that person who took a, a brief boot camp or um, read a book or, or went to a workshop might get the job. And it's true, that does lead to a lot of challenges. And that's a bigger kind of window into, I think what you and I have talked a little bit about over the summer that we both see, which is the fight for respect that design sees is continuing and it comes and goes. Um, for years, design feels like it's on the rise and just in the past few years, it feels like possibly it's struggling a little bit. And what causes that is something that I've had a unique perspective on being on the inside of yeah, at least three large companies building out design teams over the last 15 years. So, Let's uh, pedal back a little bit. It's very hard for me to just write an article about one simple thing. Like, I feel yeah. like every time I write about something, it has to be on some kind of a foundation. So in that article, I also try to link together these historic events of how design made its way from more of a, an end of the design process to up towards strategy and how a big part of it was in the 2010s, how business started to or seemed that it had started recognizing it. And big consulting firms started investing into purchasing big design firms. And one of that was, in fact, Capital One, where you were at. Yes. And you guys made this big step. Yeah, we did. It was an amazing decision. And I was lucky enough to be at the helm of that decision and advocating that, it, that it's something that we should do. I was the leader of the design team. At Capital One, I had founded the design team by centralizing a number of small design departments around the company, bringing together the contractors that were working for the company. And mm -hmm. We centralized design at Capital One really more with a focus on UX design in the beginning, but also we embraced design thinking and its connection to design strategy. Right. And with a small team of... 40 to 50, we started to grow and figure out what we wanted to be within Capital One and how we could influence the trajectory of the business. At that time, Adaptive Path was one of the more preeminent design firms, both from being at the forefront of UX and also being at the forefront of service design. 
Already back then? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. I mean, if I only think about it, I told you that when I came out of you know school in 2008, I looked around on the market and there was barely anybody who knew what service design means. Yeah, I think Adaptive Path was founded in 01, 02, 03, yeah. with a focus on UX and some famous founders, some famous books like Jesse James Garrett's uh, Elements of User Experience. And they did something that I think was really special for the design community, which was they hosted events. So UX Week was one of their big events. This was before the meetup era? Yeah, it was, well, and it was larger. So it was event size. So a thousand people there with great speakers on stage. Right. Um, it's more like a conference-y. Yeah, it was more like a conference. And MX, I think, was another, which was managing experience, which was the only conference for design managers to learn from each other. So great speakers on stage, but all with a, you know, how am I figuring this out as right. a design leader? And then there was service experience or managing service experience, something like that. Are you serious? Already right. back then? Yeah. I am impressed. So I think it might have been launched, I don't know, 2012, 2011. Okay. And the acquisition was 2014. So the world assumed that when we brought Adaptive Path into Capital One's design team, um, first of all, it was easy to assume that that would be Capital One's only design team, but we already had... By then, 99 people on our design team. Okay. Adaptive Path was roughly 50, so it added a third of the size. Um, but it added so much talent. I mean, they were amazing. And one of the key things that Jesse wrote in one of the articles was that they had met many potential suitors and finally found a company that they felt they could have an impact on and also that understood and respected design. And it's true, the culture at Capital One respects, it's a very growth mindset culture. So they, they, if there's something new, the culture is, teach me, I'd like to learn. If it's new and if we can do better, we'll take it on. And I make a point of that because so many company cultures wish they were like that, but aren't, because it's a very difficult thing to do. Yeah. You know, embracing change requires taking risks. And also accepting that there are things you don't know. Yeah, which puts your own career at peril, maybe, um, which we can come back to later, which I think yes. leads to a lot of challenges for design's rise. But when we brought Adaptive Path into the company, everyone assumed we would crush all of those conferences, and I was thrilled to keep them going. So we did. We kept them going, and that was really so impactful for the movement of design at the time, I think, because the design community needed those conferences still. And also for Capital One, we were able to bring in other partners. Imagine being able to bring in product managers and technology leaders and business leaders to see portions of those conferences and see the community in a new light, right? See, see the community as experts, uh, which of course we know designers are and hopefully listeners of this podcast you know, would agree, but it's not that easy for somebody with little exposure to deeply understand you know, that a designer is more than someone who makes things pretty. But go to a conference and see the dynamic leadership on stage describing stories of what they've affected or built. And you can really go a long ways in evolving someone's perspective. When we initially talked, you 
you're sharing with me how you started with entrepreneurship and you're also a little bit bonded over how these two seemingly very different areas actually have a lot in common. Yeah, my my journey in design has been, I don't know, almost accidental or something I didn't even realize. But as a as a kid, I was... I was always very creative. I was always the most creative of of my peer group. And I was an artist and drew and did things like that and dreamed of being an architect. But in high school, I was inspired by entrepreneurship. Some amazing teachers who were just retired people offering up their brains for the amazing things you could build if you created a company. And so, bizarrely, I fell in love with that as a creative output. Okay. Out of high school, I... I chose not to go in the direction of design and instead to go in the direction of entrepreneurship and that meant business school. And I chose more creative classes in business school, but I went straight into a real business school um, at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And from there, chose Disney as my first employer to learn from them and figured if I could learn the way Disney creates things, I could build the business of my dreams more effectively. And then accidentally ended up stuck in giant companies for <laughs> the for the next 20 years of my career but always in a in a mode where I was in a giant company helping them look at the world differently and so you were kind of a change agent yeah it was just it was just the way I was wired so I just brought that to the company and that that usually meant taking on more risk than peers around me at these giant companies yeah and so that meant I migrated towards innovation teams or at Capital One. I was hired as the business leader to run their direct bank. Right. We acquired another direct bank, ING Direct in the U.S., um, was acquired by Capital One just as I was stepping into my role. And so then I became one of the three leaders of the direct bank, and I transitioned towards experience and features and what would differentiate uh, a direct bank. So that got me closer to design and advocating for how important it is to have experts lead the way in creating things that improve a customer experience. And so we founded the design team at Capital One to fulfill that objective. People around me kind of said, well, yeah, we need it, but I wouldn't want to put my career at risk starting <laughs> that up. Good luck with that, Scott. And <laughs> I said, this is perfect for me. It's the way I'm wired and I believe it. Had already had some good exposure to some amazing people in my life, certainly at Disney, but in other ways. So, so yeah. And at Capital One, I guess it was a good place for me to start because of what I mentioned earlier, that culture is so growth mindset oriented. By the way, hopefully many of the listeners to this podcast are aware that Capital One's design culture today lives on as strong as any in the u.s so last i heard there were 900 plus designers oh my god in that culture you really started something there. yeah when i left it was over 450 when i left it was because i was wooed away to to join verizon as their chief experience officer because verizon had leaned into the movement of understanding the customer's full journey and differentiating through experience and they really wanted someone who had seen it and done it before at the at the c-suite level so i could influence far and wide and so we repeated the recipe at 
at Verizon in many senses of the word, um, including another acquisition of Moment, a wonderful service design plus UX design studio out of uh, Manhattan, New York, um, with wonderful leaders also, who many of whom are still at Verizon as design leaders uh, today. And um, same story there. That design team started at 5060 and today is over 400. Hmm. And I think it's important when when you describe the size of a design team, I think it's important to articulate why it's important. <laughs> yes. Um, because it isn't empire building. It isn't just pride of size or power or force. It means that the team has done something that resonates with the rest of the company and that the company has shifted its dollar investment in talent towards designers, towards um, researchers. Within the design space, usually several different types of designers, obviously, that work in harmony. So Verizon has service designers as well. We had to really nurture them when I was there and it was really nascent. And I got a lot of wonderful designers coming to me saying, thank goodness you're here. We've been here. Nobody understands us. You're formalizing things. You're helping tell the story. That's one of the biggest things I've learned over the years is you know, I think what it takes to tell the story and to build up a level of respect across an organization for the impact a design culture can have on an organization. It's tenuous. It's tricky. Yeah, I was going to say that from what you just said, it all sounds like happiness and butterflies and everyone loves one another. But I assume that it didn't start out that way. And I wonder how, what led you through these challenges and what these challenges might have been yeah not only did it not start out that way um designers at most companies are held down you know and are uh, receivers of decisions rather than influencers of decisions and so to break out of that is a, a methodical process and it's one that we learned our way through because of trial and error um, some some bravery on the trial side. And also, I, I would say importantly, because of talent. So if, you, if you're an organization and you bring in some of those people who have just come from a boot camp, you're not going to make it through those moments where the rest of the organization is judging, can I really trust this talent yeah. and their methods to lead us in a great direction or not? Because that person just doesn't have enough yet. But if you can attract some people with some amazing experience and depth uh, of, of application of the methods, and whether that means they came from a famous school or, or worked at a company that had a, a fantastic culture, if you can have some of those folks in, in on the ground floor when you're trying to build a reputation for a design organization, then you've got a shot. And then kind of excitingly, I would say, if you can anchor on those types of talents you can then bring in people who are just learning their way right. into the new field under their umbrella and um, you and I talked about this earlier but in my experience roughly half of the most amazing designers are people without classic design pedigree but leaned into it at some point in their lives and maybe they had something else that was a, a really critical foundation. 
like anthropology or psychology, something else related. And then when they leaned into it, they needed to learn under someone who did have tremendous design pedigree and background and spend some time doing that. And they can be just as amazing or more amazing than, than other people. (gasps) Oh my God, you just said it. (laughs) It's true. Well, look at look at the famous names in our industry and look at what they originally did. Not all of them come from design school. This is a complex topic of when have you arrived? When are you there that you can actually deliver that service that you are the vessel between what to do and then making it? Yeah. And providing that framework and making sure that you are the guardian of all the checkpoints and balances and also the inspiring rockets that you need to put under the thing to to get it there. It's, I think, a very controversial, in a way, job to do. You're the challenger, but you're also the the manager of the process. Yeah, that's right. And you're missing one, then you cannot really deliver, I think, that value. So I think if you are coming on the design field, one thing you need to learn how to make things from just ideas and how to make sure that what you make actually stands on the ground of reality. I often seen people coming from one or the other. You know, you look at, and by no means of trying to insult anyone here, but if you look at, for instance, people coming from the IT field, they have no problem making something, right? Right. They have something in their head and they make it. Right. It may not stand on the ground as in who might use it or how it will be used, but it will be there. Right. Whereas you look at someone coming from maybe psychology or sociology, so more of the, it would be, I recognize the problem and it would be nice to do it differently, but they don't know how to make a solution. And then you need to link those two things together, stitch it in one. Yeah. And how do you learn to add those extra skills to your, to your skill set? You, you either go back to school or you learn from someone in an applied way. That's right. I can, right. yeah. You could join a team, yeah. learn under somebody you admire. I think apprenticeship is undervalued. No. In my design career, I started off coming out of a service design master's and not knowing where to go with it. And it took me years of learning under others yeah. and a variety of design fields. And it always reminded me how it must have been back in the right. medieval ages, right? Like you had to do apprenticeship. You would go from, you know, one master to another master to, to learn the craft and... I felt like this is still undervalued in in today's career-driven and an outlook. Well, I think it's going to start to be valued increasingly again. If you came from a boot camp, but you can say that you studied under somebody admirable, like like my friend Jesse James Garrett, who's who's maybe more famous for UX, but certainly all types of design, then if Jesse says, I know designers, I know the method, and this person understands it, then that's the kind of affirmation, I think, that is worth seeking if you want to find your way in a design career without the traditional design background. Even though, you know, my opinion about the traditional design background, too. And then I find that my... And I'm building on my own experience and others who come from a similar background... Going to school and having that freedom of experimentation and just having even not just the freedom, but actually being pushed to experiment, I thought was 
it had a big impact on how I approach or how we approach issues that we face versus someone who only had the chance to learn skills or acquire skills. And yeah, that's so in applying. Some them. of the people in different fields would say that they learned to experiment in different settings or different contexts. Or they could have learned it as they started applying their skills under, you know, under an expert design master, if you will. Well, I'm just saying that if I'm in a work environment, I am not really encouraged to make mistakes so much. But if I'm at a university, I am invited to. And with the rise of the startup culture and the idea of fail fast, fail often, yeah. I saw an opportunity in there and I wish it was more widespread and more accepted and supported because if that was true, what you're saying, I could go with. Well, in my experience, so many work cultures now are trying to say we are all about experimentation and we're all about fail fast. They just don't have people that can do it. Okay. So, and that's because of the the culture set forth. So if you feel like failing will taint your reputation and or affect your performance review, then you're going to be less likely to boldly fail on exactly. the job. Exactly. You know, in a in a culture. So I mean imagine your life is dependent on not failing. You will not want to do that. Right. Especially if you are under leadership that respects design not so much. Right. Just as a, We're still learning to respect design. Yeah. So we keep coming back to the idea of how design, one way or another, would need to earn the respect of business in order to achieve what we believe it should achieve. Or right. Make it together achieve. Right. Not where we are. How did you come to respect it? What was your experience? I think I always understood it better than most people, maybe because it's in my DNA. I've, I've come to admit that it's in my DNA. Um, it's also pretty easy since I started my career at Disney that I started with a, an amazing, I mean, many say Disney, Walt Disney was the world's first experience designer because he looked at every detail of, you know, how to build Disneyland and every tiny bit of, a, of an end-to-end journey, really. So that's in the culture there. And so I just, and that entire culture reveres it and knows that it's the heartbeat of what makes that company tick. So that's almost a design-first culture. And so when I moved away from there and ended up in a, you know, accidentally ended up in banking, which is almost a design-last culture, <laughs> it was easy for me to maybe find ways with the business language that I had, find ways to appeal to business leaders to help them understand the ways design can positively impact the business by positively impacting products, services, solving real problems for customers and what the business drivers would be if you did that well. You're saying that it's in your DNA, but I would want to hope that that's not the only prerequisite on the business side to, to develop this trust and, and, and understanding. So what would you say that you see is really challenging for others on the business side who may not have the Hmm. I think having a growth mindset and being open to learning new things is, is important as well. So I think it's easy for classic business people to believe that the, the way to a customer's heart is through marketing. I mean, that's the, that's been the function that has done customer research, has framed things in ways that would be 
attractive to customers. And marketing was one of the things I studied in school, so so I had that in me as well. But you come to realize there's that creating something better has a larger impact than creating anything and selling it better. <laughs> so yeah, I, it's Touché. a good question. I, I wonder. I wonder how more businesses can learn that. Um, I know I love telling stories of companies who don't believe in marketing as much. And I love telling those stories because I, even as someone who has marketing in, in my past, um, that's what I did at Disney. I can just see how special it is if you're Tesla and you're spending almost zero in marketing and you're pouring it back into the experience of your car or in the States, if you're Starbucks, same story. Um, Apple does very little marketing these days, honestly, even though it's famous for a couple of ads, you buy Apple because it works better and because they've obsessed on making it intuitive and they've, it isn't just because of Apple's aesthetic or impute, as Steve Jobs said. It's because it works better. And I just, there's an amazing thing if you think of tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars at some companies go into marketing, advertising. And if you put a hundred million dollars into making your products better, what impact could that have? Like, would people tell each other? and Would, would your reputation spread? Certainly there needs to be some communication strategy. But there's a, there's a business angle that says win with a better product or service, that's a more sustainable way to win than with a better campaign. Right. What do you see and why do you think that companies would still feel their money more trusted in marketing than in making a better product? What, what is the burden there? Yeah, that's a good question. I... There's so many things that are realities in companies that are just because of momentum. So this is the way we've always done it. Starting with pure money, like a marketing team has a budget. Uh, and at giant companies, that budget includes, like I said, hundreds of millions of dollars for advertising. And there's a whole ecosystem around that money and people's careers. They're not ready to give $100 million over to the product team or the design team like I was describing earlier so they hold on to it and they do their best to campaign that the way we've always done it is the way we should do it moving forward how did you convince your peers to choose otherwise because you successfully did well with lots of bumps and bruises along the way for sure um, and there were times when we didn't feel so successful but I think every company is starting to realize that we're entering an era of authenticity where customers really want their companies that they buy from to be real and to deliver things that are better, um, not just put a spin on it. I think you could look at Coca-Cola as an example of this. Coca-Cola used to be all about the brand and the red and the whatever the tagline was of the year, enjoy life. And now that very company is investing in coconut water right. and smart. they bought smart water. They're moving towards things where they're like, well, when it comes down to it, 
our customers don't want corn syrup and phosphoric acid in what they're drinking. So we're going to evolve to to sell authentically yeah. good products. So I do think there's a movement towards that. I think what gets really tricky is you see at companies where the CEO gets it and says, from now on, it's all about finding out new ways to serve where the customer is at today and a whole bunch of buzzwords, right? It's all about the journey. It's all about differentiating through experience. That can come down from the top. But then under that, if they don't change the leadership, you have a bunch of people who have their careers anchored on something that they understand which really needs to be sunset like methodologies that need to go away and they're afraid to let those methodologies go away because they don't know how to learn the new methodology and who's gonna provide the assurance that if they switch to a new methodology that will deliver right right and that comes to (laughs) exactly well it also goes to a little bit of the debate you and I have of your point that if you don't have the real design pedigree, you're missing out on some things. Well, what if you are a marketer who has always understood customer experience and you want to transition your career into being a service designer? Is there a path for you? If there's not an easy path for you, then you're going to fight to keep those responsibilities within your marketing department. And even at the, at the lever of putting down the service design function, you know, working against them so that you can keep your responsibilities. And this is happening at companies everywhere. So it's an interesting thing for us to come back to. It's a threat if people show up on the scene having taken a boot camp, pretending to be some new version of a designer. But if we don't figure out that threat, the bigger threat is people who are mid-career who refuse to make space for our field and our methods and our ways that we believe are the future. We're not going to be able to come in if we can't welcome more people to convert their careers this way. So, and I believe from what I've seen, someone with the right background and aptitude can do it if they step into the role and they have the right guidance from a master, right? Or some type of a or some kind of framework, yes. Yeah. I, I can go with you with that. Yeah. Really. Well, and and we should go this way because we do know of industrial designers who decided to be service designers and on a background and they and they shifted into into new fields. Oh, oh, but I would not compare the two things actually. True. Because it is a mind it's a mindset, it's a it's a thinking model that you know, anybody in my belief and my experience, anybody coming from some kind of a creator career such as a by creator i mean an architect uh, a graphic designer yeah there have been so many architects on my ux teams yeah it makes sense because the thinking is the same thinking model is very much similar but if you come from yeah i'm not sure how to identify or how what kind of an umbrella on there should i put these um career choices but the you know they're the same building blocks you come from Psychology, and I'm not talking down on psychology. I have wonderful colleagues who have come from psychology, so yeah. that also proves your point. Yeah. But they put in the time and they put in the effort and they had the humility uh-huh. to, to walk the, the walk. Right. And not just put a stamp on and say, 
I am the master of this universe. And also not put a, a fake title on with no background and no reverence for the new field that they're entering. So, and I have seen that. I have seen it be a problem where you've got even talented designers stepping into service design roles, taking on the title without having the depth. And the threat there is is real because then when the, the other team, the business or the technology team lines up against this person and this person says, I'm your new service designer. And if anyone on those other teams researches what a service designer should know and should be capable of, and then they work with this person, if this person doesn't represent that brand, boy, it takes respect back several years, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, everyone's negative experience in a place where there is no trust yet. Well, and also this notion of survival title changes. People are calling themselves customer experience this and journey, you know, architect that. And if you don't have the background to support it, then what the business people who meet you will conclude and the technology partners and others will conclude is you're all fakers. You're all just taking on the latest phrase and why should I believe you? So that's why I really do believe for a nascent team trying to make first impressions, pedigree is super important, probably the most important. To be able to introduce to a room, hey, you may not be familiar with what design you know, strategy can do or what service design can do or what UX can do, but this person has spent 15 years doing it, came from this school, and we're thrilled to have them at the table. Well, now everyone's listening. And if you've picked somebody who can back it up, by their personality, frankly and sadly, by their looks and appearance. If you pick someone who can back it all up and make an impression on everyone, then that person will be seen as a missing piece of the puzzle and welcomed, not just at the table, like we always talk about in design, but welcomed to be an important part of the process moving forward. I I was going to say, having a seat around the table is, I think not what we aspire to achieve, do we? Because, I mean, we cannot also ignore a company's design maturity. Where do you arrive at, right? Like, what's the situation that you are invited in? And if it's in the beginning of their journey, then sitting at a table is really not enough. Like, you really need to be out there, you know? And you need to bring them with you. And you need to have them see it, create transparency, create space for conversation totally create um an opportunity for prototyping allow criticism to flow totally create this safe space for everyone to see what they can make of it and how it can adapt it and you're right um having a seat at the table if that's all you're aiming for i mean you're in big trouble because that can completely work against you if it isn't taken advantage of If you're the other team, if you're the business team or the technology team, you can check a box and say, we gave them a seat at the table. There's a designer right there. (laughs) And this is an important thing for for me to share. Um, And I'll be curious if others have, have learned the same lesson. If the person who's invited to have a seat at the table doesn't have roughly the same level of experience and background and seniority, then there's your first problem because they're treated 
in, as an inferior voice at the table. So all other discussions are happening and you have an inferior voice at the table who's ignored. And then if traditional ways of doing things aren't adjusted, now that you've got that expert at the table, um, they're still ignored. So yeah. for example, and this goes a little bit more towards UX, but I've been in countless conversations where the UX designer, a senior UX designer was at the table and when it came to walking a CEO through a prototype of, of some new product or service, digital product or service, the senior IT executive walked them through screenshots. Okay. Now, importantly, they did this nervously because they knew that they did not understand the decisions that went behind the designs on those, on those views they were showing. And the designer introverted, polite designer just let it happen, which was a complete disaster for earning respect from the CEO, from the business, from the technology team. So that takes a leader to stand up for, for the designer and say, hey, since this is the person who led the decisions that created pages like this or screenshots like this, let's have them cover it in future conversations and everyone will get more context, more depth, get more from the presentation we then have to reposition the technology leader's voice to talk about the build and the technical aspects and frankly, good things like the resiliency and other things that actually should be elevated to the discussion that aren't. And they aren't because the discussion's only so long and the technology person was talking about the UX. So now the, the team loses in two ways. Not only are they not learning the depth of the decisions that went into creating the service experience, but they're not learning some of the depth of the decisions that went into the technical aspects of it, which we often have found it helps to highlight our partners and say, hey, let's, ha let's bring the technology partners forward to have a stronger voice in their field. When we talked previously, you mentioned something very interesting. Why might that be that there are areas connected to business that are important to business that they accept the opinion of right away? such as technology or legal, and design cannot be treated the same way. Not yeah, yet. it's just an observation I've made that that is an interesting one for us to think about as a design community. Um, because technology is so complicated, the business leader just has to rely on the word of the, of the technology leader. And the technology leader can say things like, don't worry about the details, here's the answer. And the business leader just has to say, okay, because the details are too complex and it's not my background. What we run into in our field of design is that even though some of design's methods and details are complex, the only people that know how complex they are are the people who are deep in them. <laughs> and as we all know, business people and, and any, any role, the loose word of design is that anybody can make design decisions at some level. <laughs> so the level of reverence for the complexity just doesn't exist un until you help people understand it. So they start from a place of, yeah, 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 I know design versus nobody says that on, yeah, 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 I know the law. That's the right. depths of the law right. in our region. Or yeah, 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 I know, you know, the depths of Python code and API stacks. So we, yeah, we definitely fight that. But the only way to get past that actually goes back to my point on, having true experts at the table 
when a meeting finishes and you've had somebody who's really, really strong as a design leader at the table, then the conclusion of the people in the meeting are can often be, wow, <laughs> I didn't realize design was that deep. I didn't realize somebody with a design background could add that kind of impact to our conversation. I had no idea, right? And as soon as that happens, everything can change in a company's culture. Did you have experiences like that? Yeah. Um, and I had to learn my way into those experiences. I, first, I had the wrong side of experience there where where people said, yep, there was a designer in that meeting and yep, they didn't add a lot. They were shy or I could tell from their appearance they weren't a real designer or <laughs> yes. the things that they said didn't really show that they cared about the business. So yeah, um, next meeting we could include them or not, doesn't matter to us. Probably for me, it was it was good luck having a few brilliant people you know, on my team and being lucky enough to attract more. And that includes Adaptive Path, of course. Having them at the table, having them weigh in, and then concluding the meeting and then watching executives afterwards saying, did you know this was what design was capable of? I didn't, is an amazing experience. There's a bunch of stuff we learned too that, that would be fun to go into, but I, I guess the highlight of it would be relationships matter a lot. So if the executive who decides that they, their eyes are opened up, if you can build a one-on-one -on -one relationship with them and their head of design or create a, an opportunity for them to have a head of design that represents just their department, then they can go even deeper and learn even more and respect even more and treat that designer the same way a lawyer gets treated. Like, I don't know about your space, but I'm going to ask you. And, and I also don't want to have another meeting without you. Um, okay, they'll be seen as a partner as a partner than a yeah resource yeah so i described What to to one of the teams I i'm advising um just in my everyday language that it's important to be treated as partners not resources and they said whoa say that again and we talked yeah. about it and i ended up doing a, a whole workshop on it because that's where design has to find its way to get yeah. to being a resource And God forbid being an, uh, a hired resource, an external resource. Whoa, I know, whoa. I know. <laughs> Those are the, the hardest things when it comes back to the path of earning respect. I um, don't fully agree with you on that, but we can, I know. We can come back well, to I think this. The, I think the design community at large won't fully agree with me because so many people are, have great experience as an external resource. But I, but I can represent the view from, from inside that says... It's difficult. Thank you for walking with us. This is the end of part one of my conversation with Scott. In part two, we continue talking about how design can gain a seat at the table and how it can effectively influence what happens behind closed doors. Today's episode was recorded in the Buddha Hills. It was produced by Yuli Mata and Aniko Feyesh. Original music by White Hot from freebeats.io. Let us know what you thought, what questions this episode has raised 
in you. You can find Scott on LinkedIn. I'm sure he will be happy to respond to any of your questions. We would appreciate if you rated us on wherever you listen to your podcast at. And we are happy to get into a dialogue with you as well. So find us on Instagram or on LinkedIn. We will be happy to hear from you. Have a lovely day. Bye.